You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everyone. Before we get started today, we wanted to let you know about our September class. It's called The S Word, taught by Dr. Matthew Crosman. It's a one-night class, and Matthew will explore Paul's use of sin. That's the S word, I guess by that's the, the S word, it right? It could have been anything. I figured that out. could have been a out. lot of things. But he's going to explore Paul's uses of sin language in Romans 5 through 8, and how we might see the effects of sin at play in our world today. And when you sign up for the class, you get the live class, a live Q&A session, downloadable class slides, and a link to the class recording in case you can't make it live and or, you know, you want to watch it at another time. And it's taking place on September 27th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. Right. Now it's pay what you can, right? Until the class ends. This is always the case, folks. And then it costs $25 to download, but you can get all of our classes if you want to do this, and I highly recommend it, for just $12 a month by becoming a member of the Society of Normal People. And for more info and to sign up, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash sin. Today on Faith for Normal People, I'm joined by our nerd in residence, Jennifer Garcia Bishaw. Welcome back to the podcast, Jen. Thank you, Pete. We'll be talking about Christian mysticism is actually a thing with our guest, Edward Howells, who goes by Eddie. Eddie is Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Roehampton, as well as Associate Tutor in Christian Spirituality at Ripon College, Hudson, both of those in England. His work focuses on Christian spirituality and mystical theology, with particular attention to the medieval and early modern periods. So this is a real academic study of Christian mysticism, and and he's a co-author of the Oxford Handbook of Mystical Theology, which, as you may have guessed, is pretty relevant for our topic today. And as always, don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the episode for Quiet Time. I think this is something that mysticism does for theology, is it reminds us, and metaphysics, it reminds us that this is about a way of life, not just about a theory. It's about how you live into your reality. It's about where you understand the truth of your reality to be. How you see it's about contemplation. And this is an intensely practical thing as well as theory. It rebuilds the link between theory and practice. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Eddie, welcome. We are very excited to have you here to talk about Christian mysticism. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was actually wondering, what got you interested in studying Christian mysticism? Did your religious background introduce you to it? Or maybe did you have some experiences that led you in that direction? I have been interested in it since I guess I was an undergraduate studying theology. And I went to a course on the subject. I didn't know anything about it but I immediately resonated with it. I was at the time an evangelical Christian and I resonated with the way that it talked in a mature way about deep personal relationship with God. And when I read the mystics such as Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, it was clear that they were able to tell me about knowing God. And that was very exciting. I think too, at the time, I was not well. I had an intestinal illness called ulcerative colitis, which kept me out of my studies for a bit. And it was a kind of turning point in my own faith. And these mystics really fed it at that time. I think they particularly helped me to see that there is a sort of invitation in times of crisis or difficult times to see more of God. This is a contemplative capacity, I guess, to see God even where you don't expect to see God. I felt they were talking directly to me in that situation, even though I was reading people who wrote five, six hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about knowing God as opposed to, I mean, this is rather cliche, but I think for anyone who's done theological study, like getting a, a Master of Divinity, for example, there's always that juxtaposition of learning about God versus actually knowing God. Right. So that's, I mean, that's part of your experience is moving to that more intimate side of things, right? Those two things were both very much parts of my life, but they were running very much on separate tracks. And right. I think reading the mystics, I saw a possibility of integrating those two things that so you could use the mind intellectually, you could explore ideas, but you could do this in the context of understanding your own. Yeah, your own self. Well, I think, you know, I, I think that's a common, those two tracks, parallel tracks that don't really come together very easily. I think a lot of people struggle with that. You know, if they don't have to have gone to a Bible college or something to do that, I think it's just the nature of the beast. And maybe, you know, learning about mysticism can help people bring those tracks together a bit. Which brings us to the question, what is mysticism? Actually, <laughs> what I mean, when you say mysticism to some people, it's a very negative term, it's irrational, it's subjectively experiential and not resting on solid data or things like that. But how would you define mysticism? I think there are many approaches to mysticism, you know, historically, and one needs to put them together in some way. But I think at the heart of it is 
what uh, my teacher Bernard McGinn calls a direct or immediate consciousness of the presence of God. And mysticism is concerned with cultivating that and understanding it. So it's not just the experience, but it's all the resources you can get hold of to help you understand and live into that. So has Christianity always been a mystical religion or did it develop at some later point? Well, the word, I think it has always been a mystical religion and it always is. But I think it, it historically the word mystical has not been used at all times. And it only developed in Christianity at about 200 in the common era. It developed, I mean, I'd say there are three strands to that development. The first would be mysticism as a level of understanding of scripture. So it's the earliest way in which the word mystical was used in Christianity by figures such as Origen of Alexandria, who ran the catechetical school in Alexandria, which was an ancient Christian center of learning. He would talk about the mystical sense of scripture or mystical understanding of scripture. And that was the level at which scripture put you in touch most closely with God. Is that allegory? Yeah. Okay, so that's an allegorical, all right, not like a literal or historical. That's right. I mean, you go through the historical and the literal, but you go to a deeper engagement with God, which is helped by allegory. And for origin, it is very much, um, it requires allegory. But that would lead him to say, for instance, that the Song of Songs was the most mystical text in the Bible, because it talks about the direct address of God to the human soul in terms of intimate love, more so than other books. It's just a song sung directly between what he calls the bride, who is the soul, and God, who is the bridegroom. And you get the idea of mystical union, of a marriage type of union between lovers coming from that uh, reading of the Song of Songs. So that's really one major element in the development of the term. I think the second is the figure of Dionysius, the Syrian monk who wrote in about 500 AD a work called The Mystical Theology. He gave this term mystical theology to his understanding of God, particularly in what we call negative terms. That's to say, God is incomprehensible, God is beyond knowing. And he made this paradoxical point that we actually can approach God most closely by admitting that we do not understand God fully. We are moving into a mystery greater than ourselves. And that kind of reorientates us towards a God who, in relation to whom we, we grow, we move forward rather than staying still. And that is a, an important element in mysticism, this notion that we are dealing with one in whom we are moving closer by virtue of what we are doing mystically by in our contemplation and so on. That's the negative strand. It's the hardest to explain, but it, it's very prominent in the tradition. And the third one is associated with the figure of Augustine, the great religious theological teacher, probably the greatest theologian in the Western church after scripture. And he contributes the element of interiority, that's to say, of looking inside yourself to find this immediate presence of God. The interior is the way of introspective awareness of your own presence to yourself. 
And he has this idea, which he takes from his reading of the books of Plotinus, who is a, a late Platonist, or do we call him a middle Platonist? I can't remember, but he's in that Greek tradition of Platonic thought. Plotinus gives Augustine this notion of interiority as a kind of contemplative practice that sees God as like your own presence to yourself. So if you imagine how you are present to yourself and you think beyond that to what is the source of that self-presence, you can get a glimpse or an idea of what God's immediate presence, God's mystical presence might be like. Now, Augustine doesn't actually use the word mystical, but he feeds into that tradition that's developing through Origen and Dionysius and so on, this element of interiority. So Mm -hmm. so there you have three strands, I think. And I guess the earliest one of those is Origen. And question that I know people ask, I've asked it myself, do we find echoes or hints, or maybe even more than that, of a mystical approach to Christian faith within the Bible itself? I mean, is that fair to say? Or or do you or do you not see this sort of thing developed by biblical writers? Yes, I think you do. You see the words mystical, the mystical union of Christ and the church, a mystery. I think the word is actually mystery there in the Bible. I think it's more actually what we're talking about as this tradition develops than saying that it is there, the word mystical is there. So, The word mystical may not be there, but the tradition is pointing to an element, yes, that's very much in the Bible, which is simply the element of moving beyond a head understanding of faith to one that is actually engaging you personally. That is mystical. It's the hidden element, the hidden element of God's direct presence to individuals and to the church. That's talked about in the Bible frequently, particularly in the letters of St. Paul, that we're in Christ and Christ is in us, and also in the theological notion that we are invited to share in the relationship of the Son with the Father in the Trinity. That filial adoption into the life of the Trinity is central to the mystical tradition and I think is central to all Christianity. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. 
You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. mystics that I'm familiar with are, are actually women, I think medieval women. And so you've talked about the men who were early uh, in this movement. Can you talk about the women and maybe why women were drawn to Christian mysticism? Well, Christian mysticism develops as part of various institutions of Christianity. And as those institutions, particularly monasticism, becomes more available to women, you get more women's writers in the mystical tradition. And then it becomes a matter of the, that is also including lay people. This particularly occurs around the time of the mendicant movements, that's the Franciscans and the Dominicans, who are very different from previous monks and nuns in that they go out and teach and preach. And you see a great burgeoning of mystical literature and a lot of women writers in the medieval period at the same time as this change in monastic practice, enabling more women to participate who would have been excluded before, but in ways which to our eyes today still look very hierarchical in terms of the ways in which women were permitted to participate. Backing up to something you said before, Eddie, that's interesting to me about the Bible and Mrs. I agree with you. You know, you can't really find much of what Christians later did or believed, Julie can't find very easily, you know, sort of on the surface reading of, a, of the Bible. And so, it's difficult to find it there. We do have, you know, union with Christ in Romans and the church united to Christ mystically. And I think you have that, you know, in a few places. But it's not really, it's not what it became later. And so, the question that really strikes me as, as one of curiosity for me is like, why did this develop? Like, why why develop something in this direction that is maybe hinted at in the Bible, but there are a lot of other things that the Bible hints at? So, why do you think this happened? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you have to look at institutional developments, uh, as I was indicating about the involvement of women, to see that contemplative life, as, as it was known, was encouraged through the institution of monasticism. That gave greater emphasis to this mystical element, not because people had time to do it. I mean, people are doing it whether they, whether there were monasteries or not. I don't think it's a question of whether it was happening or not, but monasteries gave expression and time to think about this, which produced all these texts that we have. So we have a quite a contemplatively 
biased <laughs> tradition of historical texts in our Christian history, which is not to say that contemplation was invented by monasticism. I think it was an element that was cultivated by it, and therefore we see it very much in evidence. So I'm wondering, I grew up in a church tradition, pretty evangelical, and I didn't know anything about Christian mystics or mysticism until I went to seminary. Do you think that there are certain branches of Christian tradition that have gravitated more towards mysticism, like the monastic movement, or have tended to ignore it? And those that have ignored it or downplay it, you know, why do you think that has happened? Yes, I think there have been times of places it's been downplayed, and, and one of them is in what typically evangelical Protestant Christianity, but also other places. Uh, it's interesting that many of the people who are really interested in mysticism are people who've had an evangelical Protestant background because it's such a surprise and delight to discover it. But I think the reason perhaps for that is, well, there are many reasons. It's to, it goes back to the Reformation. The suspicion really at the beginning of the Reformation about excessive amounts of time and energy spent on the inner life as detracting from life in the world as being really too otherworldly and possibly detracting from the kind of faith that was being preached at the Reformation, which was there is one step of faith, there is one step of salvation, there is not this process of gradual growth in faith that the mystics were talking about. So we must focus on the, the moment of conversion and the moment of freedom in God that that brings without dwelling on this interior life. I think Luther and Calvin did, you know, cut off a lot of wisdom deliberately, but you need both. David Tracy has the phrase theologies of proclamation and theologies of manifestation. Theologies of proclamation are those more kind of Protestant word-based preaching theologies. Theologies of manifestation are more about contemplation, seeing, seeing God's presence. And you definitely need both because without the proclamation, you don't actually tell anyone <laughs> the benefits of what you've discovered. But the contemplation, if it gets cut off, it can become quite unrich, quite shallow. So what can be proclaimed is the manifestation, the invitation to this manifestation. And I'm, I'm only making that point because, again, in my experience, Eddie, the proclamation is not just a proclamation about anything, but it's a proclamation about a very specific way of understanding the nature of the good news, which is to save you from going to hell. Whatever happens after that, that's, that's gravy, but that's the main point of it. But you can also proclaim something else, let's say mysticism, right? Right. That's what I would proclaim. I would proclaim people trying to find the presence of God in their life as it is, rather than telling them some information that they don't have about how they should be. That's a big shift for a lot of people, I think. Your work involves engaging theologically the Christian history of mysticism. Can you explain what that means and how does that maybe differ from other treatments of Christian mysticism? Yeah, I think there are many ways of approaching Christian mysticism. I would say there are three main ways. One is through experience alone. It's to say that it's an, a special kind of experience which you can define and this goes back to the classic expression of this is, is William James, who, who was writing about 1900. His Varieties of Religious Experience, a very popular book, which sought to remove any consideration really apart from just the quality of the experience. And by that alone, you could define the mystical. And that has had various followers 
to the present. That's not the approach I take because it seems to me the experience actually, when you say you've had a mystical experience, you are drawing on cultural and historical resources in terms of the language you're using so that that term mystical has a history. You call it mystical because also because of what it means to you in your circumstances in your own history. So you also need history to understand what the mystical is. You need the history of the idea and what it means. And you need theology. For me, the theology is the most important part because it actually enables you to relate human, merely human experience to God. It, it's the way I, I take theology to be in the broadest sense language about God, understanding of God, it helps you to relate the whole human reality to God. So it's a help in your, the precision with which you do that if you have some resources from theology. And without those resources, I think you turn mysticism into something very different. It's like a, it's a part of the brain or something, which right. that's a very different thing. I want to make sure that we get to some very practical matters we'd like to discuss. But before we get to that, one maybe a little bit nerdy question, and this comes out of things that I think you've spoken about and written about as well, that mysticism contributes to theology and to metaphysics. So, in a way, that's not going to overwhelm us. What do you mean by that? I think um, mysticism I see as a kind of purification tablet, which should be ingested by theologians and metaphysicians, because it helps them to keep tabs on uh, actually what they're trying to do rather than getting above themselves. Mysticism keeps theology and metaphysics humble because really recalling that element from Dionysius, it points out that we approach God best when we remember that there is more to God than we'll ever grasp. And that actually putting that at the centre of our language and understanding of God actually gives us a better understanding and language of God than if we forget it. So I think that's the first thing that mysticism does. I think another thing that it does is it rebuilds the link between theory and practice. There was a book by Pierre Adot called Philosophy as a Way of Life in the 1990s, which talked about how philosophy is not just a matter of understanding, but it's also a way of life for the ancient and medieval thinkers. And I think this is something that mysticism does for theology is it reminds us, and metaphysics, it reminds us that this is about a way of life, not just about a theory. It's about how you live into your reality. It's about where you understand the truth of your reality to be, how you see it's about contemplation. And this is an intensely practical thing as well as theory. So it, it rebuilds the link between theory and practice. A third thing I'd say is that Mysticism, I think we talked about this already, but mysticism helps to unite the heart and emotions with the mind. It, at root, we get an idea of the mind as more than reason. The mind is also the will and the memory, not just the intellect from this tradition. We're encouraged to reason in a way which is actually takes account of our feelings and emotions, but doesn't just say that feelings and emotions are somehow better than reason. It, it puts them together. Yeah. So, in term, just very quickly, in terms of the mind, the way I've heard it put, and I, th I think you're saying something similar to this, is that you know the mind isn't shouldn't always be in the driver's seat. By mind, we mean intellect and reason, that, that mind in that sense. And I think what you're saying is that mysticism will help decenter that kind of thinking, at least. 
to maybe bring to the fore the experiential nature of this rather than something simply generated by our thinking? Yeah, you know, it needs to feel right as well as to think right. But I think there's also, that's what the theologians and the metaphysicians need to remember. But I think at the other end of the spectrum, you see, let's practice some spirituality and mysticism. So put your mind to one side and just let it come to you as as it feels. So in other words, that's a divorce of the mind and the heart from the other end of the spectrum. So in the middle, we're getting this encouragement from the mystical tradition to try and do both at once. Well, I want to talk more about that experiential part. I mean, how does one actually practice mysticism? Yeah, I think one way to think about it, you know, that I don't know how practical you want me to be. I mean, I can talk about, you know, things you can actually do, but I think you need to think first of all about what the elements are in, in the practice. And I think the ancient division of the mystical life into three phases or kinds of elements of purgation, illumination and union, the, the, the so-called triple way, purgation, illumination and union. These are the different elements you can think about in your practice. The first one, purgation, sounds a bit forbidding to be purged, but it, what it really means is what active steps do I need to take to put myself in the presence of God? So it might mean praying. It also, I think, very importantly means keeping watch over your thoughts. And this is an idea which goes back to the Desert Fathers, but actually observing what's coming into your head on a daily basis, perhaps at one time or other in the day. And as Evagrius, the Desert Father, says, follow the thoughts that lead you to God and work against the ones which do not. This is your ascetical or purgative practice. It's kind of mindfulness. And mindfulness, in fact, is a way of, a way into this, I think. Christian mindfulness. Then the second element would be illumination. This is the actual listening, the receptivity to shut up when you pray, to speak and then to wait. Illumination, say, in origin, going back to origin, this waiting is for the principles which lie behind the world, the things which actually show you what's going on, the hidden meanings, the underlying reason, the deep order and structure of your life. You can expect to receive some illumination about, not in a great picture of everything altogether, but in little hints of what's really going on. I think this is the stage of illumination and making space for that to listen. It's a God-given stage. It's a gift of grace, but it requires openness and listening. So practices of listening. It takes a lot of commitment to do that, to, to say the least, because I think many of us are wired to not do those very things. But to talk and you know, mindfulness and waiting is for some of us, not to mention any names of people present on this call, but it might be me, who, you know, that left brain German analytical thing is always sort of at work. And I think getting to the part of mindfulness and receptivity and waiting is part of the process. And I know just for me, being in context where people understand that, it can actually help you along. Because it's hard to just, I think I'll be contemplative now and sit on your couch before, you know, two minutes are up, you're doing the laundry or something. You just sort, the monkey brain takes over and you're gone. So 
I'm just all this to say, I just I respect what you're saying, and it's serious business. This is not for the faint of heart. No, and it's very practical. I mean, it's something that um, you need time to practice, but it goes into every moment of the day in terms of I'm not just trying to fix this problem, but I'm trying to listen for what's really going on in my situation, whatever it is. And that is a discipline. Yeah. So staying on the topic here of the practical business of all this, again, speaking from my own experience and having talked with many people, they'd like to get into this. They see it like instinctively, intuitively the value, not just the value like an add-on, but just a different way of even being Christian. They say, how can I do that? Where do I start? And where might you point people? And I think one very specific way of asking that question that has helped me is, are there let's say, in your mind, contemporary mystics who write and think about these things and have been influential in helping people down this path? There's a lot of books that you can read. You know, for me, the most interesting ones are actually the older ones. Maybe that's because I'm a historian by sort of training. But I would, you know, I would say pick up Augustine's Confessions or Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle or Julian of Norwich's showings, revelations, and just try reading it. And there's a, there's a world there that um, will open up. But in, in practice, really practical terms, I think having, not just reading, but having some sort of guide, I'm very involved myself in Ignatian spiritual direction, both as receiving direction and giving direction. This is the tradition of spiritual direction after Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises which is quite prominently available. And I think having someone you can talk to about spiritual things who will take them seriously in a non-judgmental way is a key part of living a mystical life. And it's one that goes right back to the desert in the third century, the fourth century. As we wrap up, I do want to hear a little bit more about about you personally. And I'm wondering... Like, what is it that you enjoy most about studying church history and the mystical tradition? What what gives you joy in this? I think it's coming to know these people that I read as companions on a journey, which is, I know, would be a strange thing to say to many people, even people I studied mysticism with in university and teach it to today would say, but these, these people are so weird and zany. How could you possibly regard them as companions for your own journey? And it's true. It's not, not everything in them is easy to swallow or even, you know, right for me. I don't think it, particularly you look at the way some of the medieval mystics, um, engaged in ascetical practices, which look really quite dangerous today, too much fasting and so on. But they open up a, an imaginative world, which is not available that I don't find anywhere else. Even if they're weird and zany, they open up this imaginative world which I want to be part of in my own way. That's exciting, and it carries on. I, I don't feel I've hardly begun. I mean, I, I've been doing this for decades. Let's think it's now uh, 35 years, and I, I just feel I'm scratching the surface. So mm-hmm. I don't feel I should be doing something else. Actually, I think that's <laughs> that's a great point to end on, because I think it's sort of the gift that keeps on giving, and it, it's a way of thinking of the Christian faith, I think, as more of a path that we're constantly learning new things about it as we go. And for me personally, to echo what you've been saying about Dionysius, that the center of all this is, you know, we can't really 
know God exhaustively or comprehensively. There's always the mystery to be invited into. And, you know, this mystical approach to Christianity, I hate, I hate even calling it an approach. It's a way of being, not just Christian, but a way of being that invites us to, I think, let go of our little views of God and to try to always be open and and follow the path of so many people behind us and contemporary, including you, I would say, Eddie. So, so anyway, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I just, I learned a lot. I think this is wonderful. I'm sure these people are going to just love and eat this up because it's very important. And it's a big shift for many of our listeners to move from, you know, the proclamation model, let's say to the manifestation model. So, so thank you so much for being with us. Yes. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks. It's been great talking about it. Now for quiet time with Pete and Jared. All right, Jared. So Eddie says in the podcast, at the heart of it is a direct or immediate consciousness of the presence of God, and mysticism is concerned with cultivating that and understanding it. It's not just the experience, but all the resources you get a hold of to help you understand and live into that. Rather complex statement, but you get the gist of it. So, you've mentioned a couple of times that you struggle with mystery as a word or concept. So, can you just think out loud about that a little bit with us? You know, it's a good question. I probably would need a little bit more time to really formulate a good response, but I can give you my kind of off-the-cuff thinking about this. And that is, I, I think, where where the the definition breaks down a little bit for me, and I don't mean this in an objective sense. I just mean for me is when he says a direct or immediate consciousness of the presence of God. I don't know right. what that means. Mm, yeah, to have a direct or immediate consciousness, and maybe the point is, yeah, because you're not cultivating it. But I think I've spent most of my life training and studying and trying to work through the fact that we don't really have direct or immediate experiences of the world in general. It's been very helpful for me to understand that truth. And I think mysticism, I do want to clarify, I think mysticism is different than mystery in some ways. And so what's being talked about in the episode with you and Eddie, not to get too nerdy or too semantic about this, but it's a specific practice that I think has been cultivated. It's a tradition that has, has specific meaning that's different than mystery as a concept. And so I don't have a problem with the idea of mysticism as a particular tradition within the Christian faith that I think illuminates things that rationalism and the modern mindset sort of bypasses. But I don't think that's the same for me as mystery as a concept, which I still think I have problems with and maybe we'll dedicate some time in a future episode to elaborate yeah, on. Yeah, probably be worthwhile doing yeah. that, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, so you can be corrected. Well, so I can be corrected. <laughs> I mean, and maybe we can go back and forth on this because I think you do like mystery as a concept. You use it way more than I do. Yeah. What What's evoked in that for you that you find helpful and meaningful? I think it just gives me breathing room to be able to say, I don't really know and I can't know. And so mystery is, in that sense, baked into my understanding of just the nature of faith and the nature of Christian life and that sort of thing. So that's why I, I like it. You know, it, it, I just, I got to a point, you know, years ago where I'm just tired of trying to wrap my head around everything. And I think if God exists, this is the way I usually phrase it, if God exists, 
and is in any way responsible for the universe or the multiple universes we live in, mystery cannot be too far behind in, t- in terms of how you talk about this God and this experience. Listening to you, I think I've maybe pinpointed at least one of the nodes on my problems with this. Mm-hmm. Mystery always sounds, and I'm going to use a big word here, metaphysical. Okay. Where what you're talking about, I would maybe use the word just humility, which feels more grounded to me. Mm-hmm. When we talk yeah, about mystery, that, yeah. it feels like we're talking in this ontology or metaphysical thing, transcendence out mm-hmm. there. But wait, the way you're describing it, I kind of localize as like a deep humility for me that helps me stand in awe of the universe in a way that I couldn't if I didn't have that. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, that's helpful. I see them as maybe overlapping somewhat in yeah. the sense that humility is what I do. Yeah, your response to mystery in some sense. That's what I'm getting at. It's sort of a response to mystery. And, you know, I don't dwell too much in what the mystery is because that sort of misses the whole point as far as I'm concerned. But it is humility. It's a realistic theology, actually, Mm -hmm. for me. Well, and I think why I don't like the transcendence idea of it is because I like to keep it as a response and this just goes back to my original beef with it, which everybody who's listening probably doesn't remember when I've, I've said I don't like it. It's in the context of how it's been misused in my tradition. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's misused a lot, even in popular conversations, yeah, yeah. where it's sort of like you come up against a paradigm. Your paradigm can't make sense of the data. And so then, rather than the humility to say, maybe my whole paradigm's wrong, I say, oh, it's a mystery. Mystery God. And so with the yeah. ontology or You'll the metaphysics, right, yeah. the metaphysics of it, when you say it in that context, it's a mystery, you are making an ontological statement. You're saying it is beyond knowing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it's just you're wrong. It's not beyond knowing. <laughs> right. You just got to change the paradigm yeah. and then right. it will make sense. It's not a mystery. Yeah. And so I can just feel myself getting emotionally reactive to that idea because it's it's saying something about what is in the universe, which for me, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like there's a step beyond it's a mystery to just like, it is important for me to turn it back on myself and just like, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's a mystery or not. Yeah. Maybe it's not a mystery. Maybe I'm just a dummy. Like, I, right. I don't know. But I think <laughs> that comes from that nuance comes from it being used as a way to not confront how you're thinking about it is in direct contradiction to the evidence right in front of you. Right. Right. It can be used as an escape clause right. or something. Right. And so, I, I mean, so I do like, I, I wrote a little bit in Curveball, my last book about what I call mystery passages, like Paul's understanding of what it means to be united with Christ, which I think is rather mysterious or ineffable. It's not concrete. I use mystery in the sense that these are words that don't capture the reality. There's a reality beyond the mm-hmm. words that is sort of like amorphous and we don't quite get it and we won't get it. You know, you know, Colossians, when we read that by our suffering, we are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I think that's a deeply, that's hinting at what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Seriously, what does that even mean? But to me, that's the allure of it. It's like, I don't really understand that. I think it's pointing me or pushing me to go beyond my analysis Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's probably one reason why mystery is is an important word for me because I've really had to learn that my ability to comprehend will only take me so far. And not just even with God, but with many, many, many other things. And maybe mystery is not the best word in all those instances, and that's fine with me too. 
Yeah. Again, I want to clarify. I have no problems with people. It's my own baggage yeah. that keeps me from from using that word. But I think maybe it's a helpful perspective for others who maybe had that same experience where right. it was abused rather than used for humility. It was used for the opposite. It can be a liberating concept for right. people who have had the burden of like, you have to have all your doctrine correct and be able to cross your T's and dot your I's and and find chapter and verse that supports it. And the more you deal with the Bible, the more I think you realize you really can't do that with the Bible. It, it's too amorphous at times. It's too ambiguous. It's too weird. And mystery is a word that helps me put language to not staying in that mode. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to mm-hmm. for me. And, you know, if humility is a part of that, I think, you know, I don't think humility should be a special kind of character trait for people who say they're Christians. I think it should be an obvious one that is, you know, you don't have to go searching for it. It should be front and center, you know? So, so I'm, I, I accept all that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, what I want to ask is another part of, of what Eddie says. He says, I take theology to be in the broadest sense, language about God that helps you to relate the whole human reality to God. So, kind of let's try to make that a little bit more personal for you. Cause you know, here at Bible for normal people, we always talk about all theology has an adjective. It's not right. some context. When we say language about God, once we say language, there's always a context, right. it's not objective. It is subjective in some sense. So what kind of theologies do you personally subscribe to? What are some adjectives you might use oh currently to help you relate the whole human reality to I God? That's a hard question, Jared. I, I know that's what questions. we do here. We hit, we ask the hard hitting questions. Not of us, of other people. Exactly. Who Does thought of this understand? faith for normal people idea where we have to answer our own questions? Well, I think you're picking up on a very important thing, though. That you know, when you talk about language about God, you're already in a context. And I think for me, part of that is just realizing that everything I say comes out of my context. And talking about you know, language about God that helps you to relate the whole human reality to God. That's also contextual how we do that. And so, I mean, what label I would give that, it's just a recognition that I'm always seeing things through my own experience. That can help me commune with God, but that might not be the way other people commune. I can't normalize this. It's just how it works for me. So maybe it's just Pete theology. Maybe that all theology has an adjective, Pete's. You know, you know. Yeah, there's something to that about, you know, mysticism maybe can represent that sort of subjective path to that recognition of the divine. In that sense, not to, I feel like I'm picking on the language here, but the idea of relating the whole human reality to God, my brain kind of short circuit when I read that language because I don't know what that means. Because for me, it's more theology in the broadest sense is language about God that helps you relate your reality to God. And even I would go so far as to say to your understanding of God. Right. right. Because in that phrase, relate the whole human reality, well, I can't get my head around that, to God. I can't get my head around that either. So we're dealing with things we can't get our that's heads right. around, but that's that's the reality of it, I think. And I, I don't I don't run from that. I don't say, oh, shucks, what a horrible thing. To me, it's more of an invitation. Well, and, and there is a necessity attached to, we still have to get up tomorrow and put our clothes on and go out in the world. Well, you do. We I'm, can't, a, I'm a professor. I well, not yet. We still, yeah, we got a couple of, we got some time for you yeah. to have to put your pants on. But I know. 
which seems weird because we're recording a podcast in person right now. Just to clarify, Pete does have pants on right well, now. I have shorts on. Sure, it's true. Because it's summer and flip flops. That's true. Uh, with socks, of course. Anyway. Um. <laughs> no, I, I took those off because I knew you'd make fun of me. What's wrong with socks? And, that's that's a whole mystery. different episode. That's part of the mystery of life of you don't mystery. get, Jared. Right. Socks and sandals are great. That's right. That's how the whole of Pete's reality relates to God, mm-hmm. but not me. That's, that's your journey. So I, I do think, not to problematize all of this, but it is what we're in the habit of doing. It is, I think, to accept that we don't have the whole human reality and we don't have the whole understanding of God. Mm-hmm. And it's navigating those unknowns that can be part of this process. Gotcha. Well, if that didn't solve all the questions of the universe, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. We're done. That's it. <laughs> Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, The Bible for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell.